Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 1st, 2018. The There Once Was a Union Made but not anymore edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS's This Morning is in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. And Emily Bazelon is back from wherever she was, from her Mount Doom, for her, from her, Brooklyn. From I her was in Brooklyn. trip to Svalbard. Your <laughs> <laughs> voyage on the Dawn Treader. <laughs> or whatever, Brooklyn. Fine. Uh, hello, Emily. Hello. On this week's GabFest, the campaign against the NRA gets heated as gun safety advocates pressure corporations to cut ties with the organization and President Trump weighs into the gun debate most um, Trumpishly. Then White House intrigue, palace intrigue, Hope Hicks leaves. Then the the end and along with that, the, the extremely satisfying come down of slumlord, self-important jerk bro, Jared Kushner, who is... <laughs> brought low by don't you mean senior white house official sorry i made that was in my notes i I misread that that's exactly what it said in my notes then the biggest supreme court case about unions in a generation are unions in big big trouble after this week of the supreme court plus we'll have cocktail chatter and we have a show coming up for which there are still tickets available in missouri on may 2nd st louis sheldon concert hall on Wednesday, May 2nd, slate.com slash live for tickets. There are still tickets available for that show. Please join us on May 2nd in St. Louis. The Parkland Never Again movement is rolling passionately forward. This week has seen two big shifts. One, a focus shift to the NRA, as there's been a coordinated effort to pressure companies to disassociate themselves from the National Rifle Association, Delta Airlines, and a bunch of car rental companies and hotel companies announced that they would no longer offer discounts to NRA members. Dick Sporting Goods will no longer sell assault rifles, high-capacity magazines, or sell any gun to people under 21. Walmart is also not selling guns and ammunition to people under 21. Um, The corporate boycott has itself provoked countermeasures, as in Georgia, which may now end a sweetheart tax break for Delta, which in turn may have a counter-countermeasure because Atlanta, which has been in the running for Amazon's new headquarters, may now be out of the running because of what's going on with its legislature. So there is so much move and counter-move going on. And at the same time this was happening, the president met publicly with leaders of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, and he stunned both Democrats and Republicans by appearing to endorse pretty significant gun control measures, including background checks, uh, keeping guns from the mentally ill, restricting gun sales to people under 21. So, John, first of all, what do you make of the president's 
very public statements yesterday about gun control in favor of gun control measures. We don't know what to make of it. Uh, we interviewed um, Senator Jeff Flake on the show uh, this morning, and he said, you know, we had a meeting just like this during about immigration reform. And on Tuesday, the president was open to all kinds of things. And then by Thursday, he was against most of those things. So he does. He said, well, I don't know which whether this is the president of a Tuesday or president of a Thursday. Um, it was an extraordinary meeting in the sense that it was you had the president saying that that Pat Toomey, who took a significant risk in a he- ahead of his election or his reelection, um, to support a background check measure in 2013 with Joe Manchin, which was very limited by the standards of people who wanted uh, more gun control, but was at, vi- fought uh, violently by the NRA as a restriction on on uh, the Second Amendment. Um, the president said Toomey was afraid of the NRA. Um, he said. All the senators were. You had John Cornyn sitting to the president's right, who looked as though uh, he was sitting through a kind of strange, strange uh, scolding or visit to the principal's office. And then you had uh, Diane Feinstein from um, California cheering on the president as as he suggested he would listen to her idea about uh, re uh, reoffering the assault weapons ban that she has championed for much of her career. So it was all topsy turvy, and we don't really know when the president talked about. Um, Another strange just kind of scene moment was the president talking about how he was he prefers to grab to get the guns first and then deal with due process later. And you had Mike Pence, the vice president, basically nodding along in agreement. Um, And I don't know whether that was his normal um, uh, solid support for everything the president does or what. But that's obviously not something that Republicans would um, would support. So. It was quite a moment, and I don't think we really know if it means anything other than just a um, kind of another extraordinary moment in this extraordinary presidency. So what does the word extraordinary mean in these sentences? Like, we all resort to these words, remarkable, extraordinary, unusual, unprecedented. I I honestly don't know what it means. Like, obviously, it was extraordinary television, but is it anything else? And and does has is Trump just flailing around like someone? Sorry, I wish I could remember who it was. Tweeted on um, Wednesday night that Trump is like the typical swing voter. He doesn't really know what he thinks, and so in one moment he says one thing, and then another emotional appeal, and he says something else, and it's sort of all over the place. And like that would be fine if he was actually your uncle in the attic, but he's the president, so it's weird. Uh, so there's that happening. And and I and I can't tell if there's also some strategy that these televised moments make him appear bipartisan. <laughs> and he likes to say, you know, I'm going to take on the NRA. I'm going to take on the hard right on immigration. It's almost impossible for me to imagine him really following through on those promises. But we all kind of go for it every time. It's like Lucy with huh? the football. On the other hand, don't we have to go for it? Like there's Diane no. Feinstein with I, licking her chops in the same way she was well, a month ago over no, immigration because well, like, maybe I this time it'll happen. No, I think the what makes it extraordinary is we've never seen anything like it, which is which is the case. But I but I but everything I said was we don't know if it'll mean anything at all. So I think we're it's actually the opposite of Lucy in the football is we've seen. And that's why I mentioned the immigration bill. We've seen him do this before. And the result previously was that it basically had no effect on what Congress was doing. The conclusion to draw is not that this is going to move something or change something, um, but that it is a it is an event limited to this 
the, the period of time in which it took place. Um, but, but that's exactly why should, it is losing the football. We're the people. No, we're no. Charlie yes, Brown. Yes, we're Charlie like, Brown. We keep kicking the football. Like, or we keep no, waiting for the football. No, no. We never to kick get to the kick football. the football. To kick the football in this case would be to see the meeting and say, oh, well, then then uh, gun control legislation is going to make it through the Senate and the president's going to really push behind all the things that he said. And the president's not going to change his mind and go back to a position that's closer to the NRA. That would be Lucy in the football. That would be taking at face value what the president said. X, Y, and Z. Well, but actually, I, I'm going to align myself fully with Emily here, which is forget Lucy in the football, because I'm not sure what metaphor. <laughs> I think we've all lost <laughs> the metaphor and the at this point, we're probably playing hockey because it's mean winter. I mean that we, the but, press, are but suckers. No, stop that it. No, I mean. we're not even talking about the metaphor. But I think to Emily's point, which is calling that, and I did this in in my introduction, but to call when Trump says something that is unexpected, to call it extraordinary at this point is useless because he it is it is fully ordinary for him to say crazy things but because there is never any action which corresponds which has any any actual correlation to the words that he speaks in moments like this it's not extraordinary it's it is that's just what he does it's just he speaks he spews and then later there the, when the policy comes out it's something entirely different and so to get worked up about it as i was was is wrong so I, I think Emily's Emily makes a great point there. It's not well. All right. Well, you have to still describe things that happened in reality. It's not the thing that happened in the previous days. It happened with respect to immigration, and you make that connection, and so that's it. But to describe a thing is not to. I mean, you have to describe what actually happened. I'm talking about the weight of with we give it and the way in which we describe it. I mean, we all are chasing it. And I think Trump plays on that. No, maybe there's no political gain to him in pretending to stand up to the NRA if he doesn't actually do it and saying things in the room that he doesn't follow through on. I'm not really sure that that's a strategy that's a successful one. And so in the sense that he winds up getting called out for not doing what he says, like maybe that's our job. But I do feel like there's a way in which the the spectacle of it, the televised spectacle is so appealing to the press. It's like catnip. And so we keep eating it and pretending that it means something or that, you know, it's it's exciting in some way that it's not. Exciting would be actually passing some real, durable, meaningful gun control legislation. My own choice personally would be universal background checks if we care to have a policy discussion as opposed to a theater discussion. Em- Emily, what do you make of the two, I thought, quite brilliant pieces, one in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson, the other in The New York Times by Ross Douthat, about what Ross calls woke capitalism. Yep. Why is it that corporations, which have have been um, very rapidly distancing themselves or separating themselves from the NRA, at least separating themselves from the special bonuses that they've been giving to NRA members, um, why are they responsive in a way that politicians aren't responsive to public pressure on this issue. It's not like there are gun rights advocates who fly Delta Airlines. There are tons of them. Right. I mean, I find this so interesting (laughs) because so one answer to your question is that corporations don't receive political contributions. And so all the soft and dark money that's sloshing around that is creating or helping to create a disconnect between public opinion on um, gun legislation and the reality we face, which is probably like nothing or very little, doesn't affect the corporations. On the other hand, it is striking that 
given a choice, a very fraught choice, a bunch of them broke on the side of, you know, more gun safety uh, in the last couple of weeks. Now, I do think that like Parkland and the high school students in Parkland have created you know, a sort of energy in the gun rights movement, which you guys talked about last week, which the corporations clearly felt like they had to respond to. But there's also something odd that, you know, both Ross and Derek Thompson's pieces pointed to, which is the way in which the corporations are using these kind of culturally liberal signaling, a kind of virtue signaling, on the one hand, in a way that's like, very appealing to liberal America and the resistance. And then on the other hand, they're like taking all their tax cut profits home and giving them to their shareholders and buying up their own stock in a way that is, you know, merely adding to inequality in America and and sort of using potentially the culturally liberal signifiers as a way of not having lots of people notice the the real sort of economic consequences of most of what they do. I mean, that does seem like a really important thing to point out in all of this. And it should matter a lot for Democrats and for Democrats deciding how much they really want to cozy up to corporations and how much they want to take them on in this, the, the really important economic questions. I want to actually, I think there are a couple of other interesting reasons why I think corporations are responsive that Derek and Ross got at. One is that politicians only face uh, accounting or reckoning every two years or four years or six years, whereas corporations face a reckoning every day. And in fact, they can face it very quickly. That yes. you, you can, if you're a corporation and people suddenly stop going to your store, that, so boycott that, that, has, right. that has a real power on you in a way that if people, if your approval rating drops in a non-election year, early in election year, it doesn't matter that much to your re-election chances. That's number one. Number two is that it also gets to the fact that when you're a corporation, you actually have to be responsive to every one of your customers because they all spend money with you. If you're a politician, actually m- many of your voters effectively don't matter if you're in a safe yeah. se- if you're in a safe seat. And so you 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 have a strong incentive to be responsive to a certain set of your voters, right. but maybe not to other ones. And and I actually well, think Sorry, John. One more, one more point, and then I'll um, let you in here. I think it's interesting in that uh, another point that I, th- I can't remember if Ross or, or Derek was the one who made this, but corporations are also weirdly the most effective and trusted institutions in American life. Which or we institutions pause and consider. <laughs> well, they tr- corporations are f- effective, and for those people who work for who work for successful corporations that are relatively prosperous and employ a lot of white collar employees, they feel like, oh, this is a working institution in a way that other institutions, I mean, except maybe the military, don't feel are working. And that the, it protects its employees. It, it tends to be respectful of employee rights. And and I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, the ones that are, that are you know, brutalizing their workers. But that for what white collar corporations are, tend to be, relatively comfortable places to be and that's unusual in america where where so many things feel tenuous and unsettled john sorry you i interrupted you well no i was just going to say the audiences as you pointed out are different you know the corporations have a total national audience and the politicians not only have a smaller audience of actual voters but the polarity is switched so you have the passion is 
largely on the side because of that delay you talked about. It's not immediate, but it's two years later. The ones who previously have remembered and have written checks and who have been uh, most watchful on the on the question of of guns have been either NRA members or have been gun owners. Um, and so they the energy is also different in addition to the audience being smaller. There's also an interesting dynamic with these state-level brush fires. You know, we saw this with the religious liberties bills that were clashing with gay rights in um, Indiana and North Carolina. And now we're having this fight in Georgia where you have a national corporation or national institutions that are being asked to comment and take a position on a southern conservative state policy and weighing in in a way that actually, I guess Indiana's not in the South, conservative red state policy. And then the corporations weigh in in such a way that forces on this conservative state a set of consequences for its position taking that then um, reverberates. I mean, you know, what we saw with the religious liberty clash with gay rights was that the corporations effectively won and those states backed off. And I'm really interested in what happens next in Georgia because Casey Cagle, the lieutenant governor who threatened Delta's tax break, is running for governor to replace the current governor, Nathan Deal. They're, They're both Republicans you know, is this the position that the Georgia legislature and the next Georgia governor is going to take or are Democrats going to succeed in uh, gaining some political ground if, you know, there are some threat? Delta is a really important company to Atlanta. This is also a controversy that pits the city um, of Atlanta versus the state in some ways. And I'm also particularly interested in Georgia right now because um, Stacey Abrams, who's a law school classmate of mine, and I think I probably mentioned on the show before, is running for governor. And she would be the first African-American governor in Georgia. And she's running, you know, quite a kind of strong liberal campaign, really trying to change Georgia, which, of course, is turning purple demographically. So I'm just that's such a great stew of and like a test uh, of all these questions. That Delta tax break, incidentally, seems pretty ridiculous. So doesn't it? It does. So the idea <laughs> that the idea that that liberals should stand up and be like, yes, yes, keep a tax break for Delta, keep that jet fuel fifty million dollar tax break. Agreed. It's pretty funny. Um, I think guns, gun issues are sort of like Israel, which is that it's very unpleasant to deal with Israel as an issue. You get so much pressure. You have to do so much fighting. That it generally, it's the most extreme position tends to to win out because nobody wants to occupy the middle and get whacked around. And the NRA has made it by by occupying a, a kind of a non compromising position and being a very effective lobbying group. They've made it essentially impossible for people like Toomey, who John cited so well earlier, to to occupy a, a somewhat less uh, extreme position. And so. I guess the, my sense about what the, the purpose of the boycott, the purpose of the boycott is to try to open a room for what I would call like the Dick Sporting Goods Walmart space, which is like, let's have an active gun life in America, but let's try to find a way to do it. Um, let's try to find a way to do it safely in, in, a, in a way that protects Second Amendment rights. And if you can get companies like Walmart and Dick Sporting Goods to fund some other organization or be associated in some other to 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 not have the NRA be the sole arbiter of what the gun policy of the right is must be the goal and right. i don't, and i don't know whether that's going to how that happens but that seems to be the aim 
Well, one way that could happen is this idea of the the more narrow idea is this um, gun violence restraining order, this red flag idea that some Republican senators and other people have been um, holding out as a possibility. And then the, um, red flag policies you're talking about, just for people who don't know what they are, that families and law enforcement can um, can petition to have uh, guns taken away if they think the owner of the gun is uh, is either what mentally unfit or has some. They have some reason to think they would do harm. And then the more comprehensive change would be universal background checks. And I'm, I hope I can figure out a way to articulate this. But I feel like the there's a central tension going on between demonizing the mentally ill, which has like become a strong theme in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it was really happening at that CNN town hall in a way that, like for me at least, was horrifying since most mentally ill people are not violent. But there's this um, – wishful thinking, and Trump really embodies this, that we're going to be able to identify in advance exactly who we shouldn't, we don't want to have guns and get those guns away from them. And so when Trump talked about getting rid of due process up front, some conservatives tried to translate that immediately into support for these gun violence restraining orders. California passed a law, I think last year or the year before, putting this into effect Seems like a perfectly fine idea. It's hard for me to imagine that it's really going to solve all the problems because like any other restraining order, it makes pe- – people have to f- take the step of actually going to court, identifying this person as dangerous and taking – getting an order to take their weapon away from them, which is really different from just like calling the police or the FBI and um, giving them a tip as ineffective as that strategy seems to have or certainly proved in Florida. So – I worry about that becoming the sole policy response when, you know, universal background checks or raising the age of buying, you know, AR-15s to 21, that's sort of taking it's, – it's where the default is, right? It's like, do we imagine that we make everybody go through some kind of process, i.e. a background check, to get a gun? And then we weed out the people who shouldn't have them that way? Or do we, after the fact, go after them? That seems like the – um, the, if we're looking for this middle space, and if the point of the boycotts is also to make the NRA a pariah, can there be a bipartisan compromise that wrestles really in a meaningful way with that tension? It still is worth noting that there has been a shift here, though the ultimate legislation that passes out of the Congress is a long way away, and there are lots and lots of hurdles. It is still a big shift for anybody who was previously considered um, – you know, in the pocket of the NRA, to be suggesting any legislative remedy to an act of gun violence. Obviously, it's not a revolutionary shift, but it is different from the the things we've had before. Hey, Slate Plus members. You, of course, get extra segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. And this week, our Slate Plus bonus segment is going to be about visiting cities. In specific, we are going to determine once and for all what is the best way to visit a city. If you are going to a city, how should you go to that city? What should you do when you get there? It's going to be apply for all cities throughout all of human history for every person. I will, I guarantee we're going to come up with a method for you. So Not we, you, you promised. It wasn't even my idea. I know, but so you John were like, clearly, I have the solution. John clearly has ideas too. John and I are going to, oh, I'm going to listen at your feet. I'm going to be an accolade for this conversation. In any case, if you would like uh, to hear Emily being an acolyte and John uh, John holding forth brilliantly, 
Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a Slate Plus member. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app. You can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for mother's day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos, but it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for mother's day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. They went to Jared. Came news this week that at least four foreign governments, China, Mexico, Israel, and the UAE, targeted Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, White House senior advisor, real estate tycoon, for their contacts. They targeted him for meetings because they thought he was naive and exploitable in a, in a way that he was vulnerable to, to their blandishments. It was only one of several pieces of astonishing palace intrigue this week, mostly involving Javanka, but not all. There was a bunch of other stuff. So, for example... On Wednesday, Hope Hicks, the president's communications director and and really one of his his confidants and the, one of his his most trusted advisors and gatekeepers. Announced My that, favorite detail is that she was the person who was like um, uncreasing his pants. Really? During the campaign. Well, yeah. Doing like Michael the steam Wolfsburg. iron thing. Oh, mm -hmm. that's from Michael. Uh, well, she is uh, the his pants will now be creased. She is leaving the White House. Uh, a day after testifying before Congress and in, in the Rus Russia investigation, she's out. Also, Kushner has lost his top secret security clearance. Chief of Staff John Kelly downgraded him, presumably because he has been unable to pass a, a background check, probably because he has just lied and lied and lied and lied and well, lied. Well, so they were worried the he was FBI. vulnerable to being a mark in the way that you were just laying out that the UAE, et cetera, was trying to do. Yes. He left out at least 100 foreign contacts when he filled out his forms that he was giving the FBI. Also, the New York Times reported on Wednesday that Kushner had met with bankers and private equity billionaires about policy and then almost instantly took enormous loans for his very troubled real estate business from them. Uh, and, and there's some stuff involving his wife, Ivanka Trump, as well. So there's just so much palace intrigue, John, but th we, we, there's been so much of it all the time. But do you think it makes a difference that this is really afflicting Hicks and Jared Kushner, who are really quite intimate with him? Not They're not the policymakers, but they're the people he, they're presumably people he really trusts. For them to be out or in, in trouble, does that suggest this White House is going to change in a significant way? Well, I, I, they're two different characters. And I think, you know, with Jared Kushner, the question is just like the question from the previous conversation is whether new revelations about coziness with private 
industry and Kushner, of course, says he's he cut ties with his family businesses. But nevertheless, but he still the, owns most of it. The connections here are obviously quite damning. Um, you know, th- but there have been plenty of damning things before. So, you know, uh, either we take note of this thing, which is extraordinary, or we say, well, it's like all the previous stuff. And since that didn't matter, this won't matter either. But it's worth noting in the in the Kushner case that arguably one of the most central things about the 2016 election was the president's attack on his opponent for sloppy handling of sensitive material. Uh, and what's extraordinary is, A, that these foreign governments thought that, that Kushner was an easy mark, but that the White House for a very long time had the information that caused his uh, security clearance to be in question. And they basically were either slow walking it or not dealing with it or not doing something and may never have done anything about it until the Rob Porter uh, case happened. So there's a lot of there are a lot of existing questions to be figured out that are separate and apart from Kushner's own entanglements. But the Hope Hicks thing is interesting for a separate reason, which is that she is and was the person who could get Donald Trump to do sort of the minimum that he would do to kind of bend to the to the to the needs of the office. And that's also what John Kelly is trying to do. But Hicks was a bit of a at cross purposes with that because she obviously also allowed the president to feel most comfortable. And when the president is feeling most comfortable, he is at his most impulsive. Um, and that's no way to run a presidency. So Wait, sorry, Don, uh, sorry, because that's actually gets to a question I want to ask. Just just yeah, we linger on that for a second. So with a normal president, you would say you want him to be around people who make him comfortable. It's clearly better for the republic for the president to feel comfortable in his own life. It'll make him have more clarity, make better decisions. But are you implying that actually it's it's better the president be this president to be surrounded by people who don't make him feel comfortable? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, on the one hand, and this is the yin and yang of the presidency, is that, you know, sometimes you have to have a chief of staff usually is the one who does this. But sometimes it's also his family that says to the president, stop it. You can't behave this way. And or get up and go do this compulsory thing because the rest of your presidency relies on it. And listen to me, I can't, you know, I don't have an hour to explain this to you, but you've got to trust your team and your team says you must do this. So go now go do that. So that's unpleasant. And often you get the person who has the, the, the most gentle relationship with the president to be the one to deliver that news and to kind of act as the, the shoehorn to get him to go do that thing. But in this White House, we are in, a, it is different than, any other White House, which isn't to say, by the way, that presidents haven't had, I mean, people who kind of soothe them in the in the fever of the office. LBJ used to have friends uh, like Horace Busby who would sit with him while he was in bed asleep with Lady Bird next to him, <laughs> talking to him until he fell asleep. And this was part of their duty was essentially to just chat with him. And then, you know, Horace Busby, would, there would be a little pause and he'd think he could sneak out of the room on his cat-like toes. And then Johnson would wake up again. And, that is, you know, this is literally the greatest detail you have ever shared on the show. As far um, as, that is and, it's like a whole I hope you do a whistle stop about that. You know who <laughs> plays that. that role in this administration? Like Judge Janine. And then in the early morning, Fox and Friends. I, I want someone like that. You do? Don't no, you think actually, it would actually be profoundly disturbing to have someone super, in your bedroom while you're trying disturbing. to sleep? It's so, it's so freaky. Anyway, sorry, John. <laughs> well, anyway, so I don't, you know, I, there's a mix of the presidency. I think Hope Hicks's job as the communications director is the least important job she had. I mean, because the president is the communications director. Um, he runs and, and undoes all of the plans of communication in the office. So the more important job she had was this job. I mean, she was also sort of like an asbestos 
suit for the rest of the organization, which is that with any candidate or presidents, there's somebody who has to take all the heat and has to basically be the person that the, that the principal yells at. And I think that was also part of her role. And you can't play that role, really, unless you have some level of trust with the president. You can't find those people just on the, you know, on Craigslist. Uh, final point. I think that is actually where they will get those people. I literally <laughs> think that's where the only people they're going to be able to get for jobs but that's, are people on and Craigslist. That's the, that's the most important point is that she is just one of many who've left. She is the fourth communications director to leave. If you talk to people who study how to run an efficient presidency, the whole goal is to get your team on the field as fast as possible so you can start working in concert. And they they fear for the day where there's a lot of turnover because it's really hard to get people to come in to fill those slots and then to get everybody working in sync. Why would anybody in their right mind want to go work at a White House that after this long is still described, and there's another round of it with this Hope Hicks departure that is described as a place of constant chaos. And I don't see how you can do it. My theory is that the people who stand the most to lose from Hope Hicks leaving are Ivanka Trump and Melania. They uh, Ivanka issued such a heartbroken statement about it. Also, maybe Sarah Huckabee Sanders, like the other women who can absorb the heat and are in positions of trust, I think, are screwed and they know it. Why? Because someone's got to step into that role and like who else? Like we were saying, you can't just go out and recruit that person. Those are the women, the other women in who Donald Trump trusts, the other women you could imagine like increasing his pants while he's standing there. I think it sucks more to be them. And the second thing I wonder is whether we're going to see some more recycling if people like Corey Lewandowski and even Scaramucci are going to come back in because, like, where else are you going to go? I mean, it is it is an extraordinary. I mean, I, we've been talking for years about the low quality of people around Trump. And part of that is because he didn't come out of politics, so he didn't have relationships. Part of it is that he's so clearly corrupt that people didn't want to be associated with it. Part of it is that he had such high loyalty demands that anybody who might want to work for him, but who had said nasty things about him was was kiboshed before they could get a job. Um, but that times a year of chaos means that they're really they're they are they are just got the bottom of the pickle barrel. It is it is pure dregs at this point. And you know when you're talking about Roger Stone or something being being a relatively intelligent uh, associate of the president, you know you're in trouble. I mean it's 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 a very very demoralizing. It's really bad for the country um, that these people are there. And I actually, as as much as I think that Jared Kushner is a, you know, a wicked, naive, greedy, unpleasant, unappealing person, I actually think he's probably slightly better than the average person they would get in that role because of who they're able to recruit. And and it's. Well, I, I don't, don't think it's going to be that helpful if he leaves either. Well, I don't know what you mean by better. I mean, I think that – and I don't mean this as a partisan statement in the slightest. I think we are going to look back at Jared Kushner as like a towering example of the dangers of nepotism and um, having these huge business dealings while you're playing a White House role. It's just from an ethics point of view jaw-dropping. Oh, it is. It's jaw-dropping. And it's that jaw-dropping. bothers me more than whatever yeah. competence yeah. Yeah. he is supposedly bringing, which I – am dubious of anyway. Um, I want to talk about Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So we had another, um, you know, round in the Trump disparaging of Sessions. He called Sessions disgraceful. I mean, this tweet really like deserves some place in the pantheon of nutty 
grandfather, uh, whatever he is, you're uncle not in saying the attic. it's extraordinary, Keith. are you? Yeah, I mean, Emily, what, what you like? Your you're last not topic. saying it's extraordinary, are you? <laughs> last, I'm not. No, five it's not minutes extraordinary ago, five minutes the... ago, you were saying like <laughs> yeah. that when the president says stuff like this, it does. You know, we should ignore it. No, we have to be shocked by it when it is shocking, even if it is no longer surprising. Come on. I refer, I refer you to the person who was no. talking in the first topic. Oh, I completely disagree. I feel like these are two comp- these are two different sorts of Trump performance. Right. One is okay. totally Make for his case. benefit, Make and the case. other is like crazy tunes and norm breaking and has to do with him interfering potentially with the justice department. Okay. Again. What, so make you're your not case. talking about performance. Are you? I'm, I'm talking both about performance and potentially substance. I mean, we still have this actual threat looming out there. So what is it that Trump tweeted that is so threatening he, and extraordinary? Yeah. Well, the part that was extraordinary to me was that he didn't <laughs> seem to really understand what the role of the inspector general in the Justice Department was. And like, that's extraordinary that Trump didn't <laughs> understand that. <laughs> yes, it is I mean, shocking. how is this different it than the like shocking. six other times he said this about the Justice Department in Sessions? And not understanding that Sessions works for him but doesn't work for him and all the other stuff that these that's that he's demonstrated all the other times he's attacked him. Yeah, I'm I'm holding on to my um right and I think duty to be shocked by things that should be shocking, even if they are no longer surprising. And ones that don't accrue to the sort of theatrical benefit of uh Trump and the way he's conducting himself in office. I mean, who knows? Like, it, yes, it does resemble the first, um, our TV White House topic in the sense that we don't really know what the import of it is, I guess. But it was, in, what was different about this particular instance was that Sessions actually came back and tried to defend himself in some way. To me, what's important to just keep track of here are these questions of what our American norms are about presidents um, seeming to interfere with Justice Department investigations. That is, there is no law that, you know, Trump is breaking here. But since Watergate, we have had this essential compromise in which we have allowed criminal investigations, including of high-placed officials, to take place within the executive branch. And there was this understanding that it was beyond possibility in politics for presidents to directly meddle and do what Trump is doing. So I just want to keep track of that. I feel like in the long run, that's something we're going to have to come back and try a a norm we're going to have to really try to reinstate. I wonder if we'll have to reinstate it. I don't think any other president, I think other presidents will recognize that that this isn't done. I think this is one that's uh, the doubt is sown by the coverage that is of the tweet. That anybody who wasn't thinking about this before, who is one of his supporters now thinks, oh, Jeff, you know, has another round. I mean, this is like the fifth round of him calling out Jeff Sessions. You know, he's clearly both with the tweet and also his effort with uh, uh, Judge uh, Janine Pirro. He was raising doubts on the weekend. Now he's doing this. I think he's, you know, signaling to his trying to keep his um, supporters thinking that Sessions has got something wrong. But it is extraordinary to have Jeff Sessions responding to the president in the press and have this weird passive-aggressive back-and-forth. Sessions then went out to dinner with Rod Rosenstein, which they said was a long-time uh, planned dinner. But the uh, the photograph of them all having dinner together while the president was attacking him was um, <laughs> just sort of added to the fact that this is just not the way it's normally done. But rising above all of this is that uh, Robert Mueller is basically not engaged in any of this foolishness. And I sort of feel like we'll just wait to see what he comes up with. And in the meantime, we can go back to worrying about other things. All right. I want to finish up this topic by noting 
because it's sort of a palace intrigue and just um, Trump administration Michigan that another week, another cabinet secretary caught uh, swampishly dipping hands in till wasting government money. This week, it's Ben Carson, our secretary of housing and urban development, who spent $31,000 for a new conference table and appears to have or at least his staff appears to have attempted to circumvent laws which would require him to get congressional approval for any such expansive spending for his office, and also doing it at a time when he's he's asking for and the government is going to make huge cuts to the budget, all to replace what appears to be in photographs a perfectly decent conference table. It is it's just gross. People are so wasteful. It is you know, this with Pruitt and his flying and Zinc and his flying and the VA administrator who amazingly still has a job despite having defrauded the government and lied to the government. It's it's pretty shocking, but whatever. No, not whatever. I agree with you. And just... uh, Carson in particular, he's in charge of, of low-income housing. Like the idea of wasting $31,000 if you talk to people who are living in the places that he is responsible for, it's um, it's upsetting. You know, and one of the responses was that, well, he didn't know about it, which is not an excuse at all, of course, um, because no staffer would ever think to have that kind of expenditure with a boss who set the right kind of tone and for whom that would have been an obvious blunder. Um, So to say that you didn't know about it is not really, uh, doesn't really cut it. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Supreme Court heard arguments this week in perhaps the most important union case in a generation, Janus versus, what is it, AFSCME? Yeah, that word that's impossible to pronounce that stands for a confederation of public sector unions. Yes, that one John and Emily just pronounced. That case addresses the question of whether public employees who work in jobs where they would be represented by a public employee union can be forced to pay what are called agency fees. Or if, fair share fees, depending or, on whether you want to give it a, a nicer or fair share pro-union okay. <laughs> little t- Even tilt. if they do not belong to that union. So can you be a free rider on the union that represents you, would be how, how perhaps uh, union advocates would put it, or uh, union detractors would put it. Can you be forced to pay for the political speech of a union that you don't want representing you? by being compelled to give up some of your salary to support that union. If Janus wins this case, Janus being a public employee uh, in where, Oregon or something? Illinois. Illinois. If Janus wins this case, and he will, it will essentially turn all states into right-to-work states. The 22 states that currently require fair share slash agency fees will no longer be allowed to require them or no longer be allowed to have them. And public employees will no longer pay them. And in states that have made this transition recently, notably Wisconsin, public employee union membership dropped significantly. And voting for Democrats also dropped. It seems to have a huge impact on on Democratic turnout and Democratic voting and also money flowing to Democratic political campaigns, which we'll get 
uh, we'll get to. I'm sure Emily will get to in one and second. some evidence that wages drop too, although it's not definitive. So Emily, all right. So there are political issues and there are legal issues. So, right. so start with the legal issues. What, is, what are the legal issues going on in this case? The legal issues are whether forcing people to pay these agency slash fair share fees is an infringement on their free speech rights. And you can see why people like Mark Janus would feel that way. These 22 states that require these kinds of fees do so with the understanding that the unions are supposed to only be charging the fees for the work that goes into collective bargaining. So if you're Mark Janus, you're already supposed to get a break from paying for the union's political and lobbying activities. And all of that comes from this 1970s Supreme Court precedent called Abood, which is on the chopping block here. In Abood, the court said, because of the free rider problem, you mentioned, David, that Yes, there's this concern about compelling speech, but we're going to allow it in this limited capacity for supporting the work of collective bargaining in order to address the free rider problem. And also at that point, the court was concerned about maintaining peaceful labor management relations. That precedent looks kind of odd when you match it up against the Supreme Court's more recent decisions about very broad First Amendment rights. And so you can imagine if you or a public sector employee represented by a union and you felt like you didn't agree with their collective bargaining positions, why you would feel like being made to pay for it um, infringed on your First Amendment rights. Legally speaking, what interests me the most about this case are the potentially huge implications of it. Because if the court really says that everything that unions do, all their collective bargaining as well as their political lobbying, is all protected speech, then a lot of regulations that the right-to-work states have placed, a lot of restrictions on collective bargaining would seem to fall away. There's already a lawsuit in Wisconsin trying to challenge challenge, um, you know, Scott Walker's recent uh, efforts to clamp down on the unions on the basis of the notion of, well, you know, if this is all free speech, then unions should be able to do all kinds of things. And there also are implications for other kinds of employee I don't know what to call them, agencies. So, for example, you know, the American Bar Association means it mandatory that you have to pay money to maintain your bar license. Maybe that's not allowed anymore either. So it's going to be super interesting to see how this opinion gets written. And and there's been a kind of... Um, question about whether the conservative Supreme Court justices who seem so eager to smack down the public sector unions, this is totally a charge led by Justice Samuel Alito, whether they are actually like opening up this box that will take the law in directions that in the end are going to have unforeseen consequences. So Emily, sorry, just to clarify. So in Wisconsin, as I understand it, Scott Walker and the Wisconsin legislature forbade public employee unions from bargaining on anything except wages effectively. Exactly. And so what you're saying is if the Supreme Court makes the conservative decision here, which would be to get rid of fair share fees, and and the reason they would get rid of fair share fees is they would say that all union activity is protected speech or it's political speech. Therefore, the implication would be, well, unions can't be forbidden from bargaining for these other things because this is all political speech. That's right. That's right. 
Exactly. And so then you could end up with a situation in which unions lose members and lose political clout and lose money, but gain the right to represent their workers in the right to work states that they don't have right now. There's also, I'm going to go on one more point about this. There's also a body of law about what restrictions the government can place on public employees and their speech. And the compromise position the Supreme Court has adopted in the past on this is that if you're a government employee and you're talking about something that has to do with your statutory duties, like your job legally defined, then the government can restrict that speech. Well, how is that supposed to survive some big, broad, you know, everything is free speech ruling? So just put, sorry, back to the right to work states point. So the argument would be that right to work states are abridging the right to free speech that would be found. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That's why they'd you, be able to operate there. Right. Right. If unions, if everything unions do is protected political speech, then how can the government tell them not to bargain about everything under the sun? Does Janus apply to private sector unions in these 22 states? No, I don't think so. It's possible it does in some states, and I just don't remember. But the way this is being framed, it's a fight over public sector unions, which, of course, politically have become much more important as private sector union membership has decreased. And then, you know, to move into the political implications of this decision, which are the more direct and obvious ones, the public sector unions are a really important power base for Democrats. They fund all kinds of political lobbying and um, and work. And so, the you know, the immediate implication of this decision is like in 2018, the unions could be a, a smaller force. And then the, you know, counter to that is like, well, if they are worried about people who are they represent not joining them, then they need to change how they're appealing to people and make themselves more effective and solve the free rider problem themselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of uh, think like, you know, we're in a period of low unemployment, relative worker strength, wages, this seems like wages are about to rise. There's a lot of companies that are having a hard time getting workers. It's a it's a period where labor is in a moment of relative strength. And it's kind of up to unions to do better <laughs> around them. If you can't make a strong case for unions or for improving working conditions, you know, I'm not sure that that the, the these unions you know, should should be able to I, I I mean, I don't I'm not sure I think that these agency fees should be paid like it, unions should be able to make the case to employees that they should belong to these unions, that they are going to get benefits from these unions. These unions are going to give them worker protections, increase their salaries, make make sure they don't get fired arbitrarily. They should be able to win people into these unions. They should get people to join. And if they can't make that case, I, I, I sort of feel like that's on them. It's not on us. Right. Well, there's something very intellectually appealing about that position in the abstract. I mean, just to like play out the free rider part of the argument. So, you know, you have a union and they're producing wage gains and other benefits for these employees collectively. And you can pay your agency fee, but you're a person in the union who's like really squeezed for cash this month or this year. And you think to yourself, hey, I don't actually have to pay this money. Most people are going to pay this money. The union's still going to accomplish most of what I want. I'm just not going to pay this time, right? That's like the sort of the the classic free rider problem that economists worry about in this sort of situation. But maybe that still doesn't move you. It doesn't move me that much. I think then unions have to be able to say, you know what, here, well, we can cut you a break this year. You're having a hard time or that they're they have a scaled system of, of dues or something like that. I mean, it, they probably do have scaled systems of dues. But 
it, it does seem to me like that unions, if the case for unions is as strong as I believe it is, then they should be able to make a really good argument that people should join it and not rely on, you know, the hundreds of thousands and not rely on these people who are free riding on them. So then what about the fact that union membership has declined in the right to work states? And so as the cloud of the unions and in some of the states, wages have already dropped. Like, isn't that some counter evidence to this like idealistic position about what unions should do? What do you mean? Well, I mean, would, so is your response to that, you know, to what I just said, like, well, that's how it goes. The unions in Wisconsin just aren't doing as good a job. And Well, I'm I'm incredibly concerned that there's been a decade-long or maybe generation-long coordinated campaign by conservative lawyers and rich conservatives, essentially, right. to gut the power of unions. And they, they're doing it for economic reasons. They're doing it for ideological reasons. They really believe it. And they're doing it for political reasons, which, which is that it helps Republicans and it helps conservative candidates. And, and that campaign is disturbing. And, the, and it's the way it's, it's made it very hard for people to organize new unions and, and the, the kind of lies and difficulties that have been thrown up in the way of unions do trouble me. But I also think then you have to say, OK, there are people who are not going to want to join our union. It is our job as a union to persuade them that they should want to join, that they're going to get benefits. Like, that is up to us. Yeah. I mean, I have a, another sort of question I always wonder about in these conversations, which is that the reality is the public sector unions are dominant, in certainly politically in the country right now, as opposed to the private sector unions. And yet, just as a observing citizen, it seems like private sector unions are where you need the union the most because in the public sector, the politicians who control the public sure. purse are not right. controlling their own pocketbooks. Like it's right. just a different dynamic. Right. And so right. I, I do wonder about that. On the other hand, then you have to decide how you're how you think that you want to address that issue, right? Because weakening the public sector unions does not at all necessarily strengthen the private sector unions. Right. That's a great point. The, one of the actual uh, things as a citizen that we should think about is when public sector unions extract higher salaries for their workers, that's good for the workers. But like we're all taxpayers. If the teachers, public school teachers in, in the state of Connecticut are suddenly being paid more because they have a richer union contract, you, Emily, pay higher taxes for that. Now, you may want to. That may be pleasing to you. But it actually hurts you in a way that a, with the, the negotiations between a private sector union and a corporation don't directly affect you. Right. And I happen to live in a state that is like effectively bankrupt and completely screwed because of the retirement plans, politicians in the past, um, the deals that they signed with government employees. Now, I don't merely blame the public sector unions for that. I mean, the pay the piper later decisions that Connecticut officials made are just kind of unbelievable. But there is a real dynamic there that, you know, is part of this conversation. Although how it affects, you know, what the Supreme Court will and should do in this case, I'm not sure. I am really fascinated by how this opinion. So let's assume there's a five to four split that Justice Gorsuch, who's the only unknown vote in this court, given the previous decisions and previous rounds of this. Let's assume it's a five four opinion in which one of the conservative justices writes it. Um, how broadly or narrowly they write it and what the implications are for some of the other questions about um, unions and political speech which is just going to be really interesting to see. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are um, having a drink with your bed whisperer, 
with your what was that guy's name, John? The LBJ guy. Oh, Horace Busby. With your Horace Busby, you you and Horace Busby are having a little drink, a bedside drink before you go to bed. What are you going to chatter your Horace Busby about, John? Well, uh, this is a, connects a little bit to our White House chaos conversation, but there has been you mentioned Veterans Affairs Secretary Shulkin, who was. Uh, dinged for uh, taking his wife on a trip to Wimbledon. But separately from that, there is this extraordinary drama going on at the VA. And you'll just to take listeners back, you'll remember that one of the president's claims in the campaign that his, was that he was going to make the, the VA uh, have better health care than even the, the kind of public health care system or private, sorry, private health care system, um, that it was going to be the sort of um, model for all health care in America. Okay, so there's a lot of reform going on in, in uh, the VA space. And there has been this massive bureaucratic fight between the secretary and then forces uh, with ties to and support of the Koch brothers within the administration. Shulkin's been basically trying to fight off these, um, some of whom work for him, and then some of whom are in uh, in the White House, basically trying to undermine his efforts to reform the Veterans Affairs uh, Agency. We should also note that Shulkin is a holdover from the Obama era, but was unanimously, I think unanimously or nearly unanimously um, confirmed into his spot. So the fact that he's a, an Obama holdover didn't wasn't originally a problem. Okay, so this week it was reported that his top deputy, essentially this guy, John Olya, the assistant secretary for public affairs. So he is his top sort of spokesman person, was calling the Hill and trying to get Republicans to call for Shulkin's resignation. <laughs> and it was this is according to reporting by the USA Today. And uh, it was unsuccessful. But um, it just gives you a kind of a sense of the level to which this had if the guy who is chief in terms of uh, of preparing your public message and trying to keep you uh, looking as good as possible in the public is also trying to get you get people to publicly call for your resignation is a um, it means there's trouble. Emily, what is your Horace Busby going to be hearing from you? I am excited about two extraordinary, really extraordinary. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This week, the Gap Fest is brought to you by the word extraordinary. Extraordinary. By two excellent books that I think are both out this week. One is by Rachel Simmons. It's called Enough As She Is. Rachel has been thinking and writing about girls and their developments and challenges for years, like since she was 12 years old, practically. Um, No, since she had a big bestseller in her 20s. And this new book, which I read over the summer when it was a manuscript, is just full of really thoughtful parsing of the inner lives of girls, of trying to understand these questions of why girls are succeeding more but seem quite miserable as their supposedly taking over the world. And Rachel has just like very thoughtful advice for parents, for girls themselves. Um, Some of what she writes about parenting I found totally useful, even though I am only a parent of boys. So I really recommend this book. Remind us of Rachel's, the, the title of Rachel's book again. Rachel's book is called Enough As She Is. Got it. The second book I want to recommend is by Adam Winkler. It's called We the Corporations. And it's just a really interesting, thorough history of how corporations manage to turn themselves into entities deserving of civil rights. So if you think of like where the idea of corporate personhood really came from and how far back in our history it goes. And Adam just 
does this great job of showing how the very tactics of the civil rights movement were essentially um, adopted by corporations with, you know, only increasing success. So if you kind of wonder about that idea of corporate personhood and corporate civil rights, like where did it come from? This is a really good read. So my chatter is about something which is just a, a sin that the government is doing in our name. And I, you know, look, we elected the president we elected. We have the Congress that we have. And that's, you know, we that's love the, them all. the system, the system we created has has brought these people to govern and they have certain rights and responsibilities as, as our governors and they have the right to pursue the policies they, they think are best. And that means, you know, changing the laws about pollution, whatever that is, that's happens and we should vote them out. But occasionally you come across something that the government is doing that is so disgusting and so wrong that you just think like what well, it can't I mean it can't be and I came across such a thing this week which I think is part of a broader perspective and it's in particular it's the ACLU is filing a lawsuit against against US Customs and Border Patrol a Congolese family a, a mother and her child turned themselves in at the border asking for asylum and they believe they were in danger and they had credible reason to believe they were in danger. They, at least they want to make that claim. They have credible reason to believe they're in danger. And so mother and her six-year-old child. And so what is the U.S. government policy to do now? It is to separate this mother and child, to take them and put them 2,000 miles away from each other. Child and mother who don't really speak English, don't know what the hell is going on, um, and to house them for months separately. There can be Under no theory. No, po I think the theory is that it may, it discourages people from coming to ask for asylum. Yes, it's deterrence. It's, pure. It makes people feel like, well, if that's going to happen to us, we're not going to do it. But it is. Look, I don't have any idea what the disposition of the case should be, whether they should get asylum or not. And it's perfectly reasonable for the Trump administration to say we're going to make it a lot harder for people to get asylum. Well, within the there's laws. a whole law about but, within the law. Within the law, they can, but they can interpret it in a, in a way that's less charitable towards towards. People seeking asylum, which I think would be wrong, but that's again, that's well. Right. Actually, it's up to judges, immigration okay. right. judges. But go ahead. Anyway, but the idea, the idea that as a matter of policy, you would separate parents from young children when there's no reason to do it. There is literally no good reason. It causes fear and disruption and distress for everyone concerned. It, I'm sure it causes fear and disruption, distress for the employees who have to do this. It's just vile and disgusting and wrong. And I can't believe that this – and it turns out that actually this is part of a larger policy that we're pursuing. And we have these we have these detention centers across the country which children are being housed in these kind of refrigerated warehouses. And it's it's just – it's horror. We should be ashamed and, and these people should be held to account and they should be – their names should be known, the people who are pursuing this policy because it is – it goes against everything that anyone could possibly believe. So that is all. Yeah, the Im immigration, it's like staring down the barrel of utter cruelty. The things we do in the name of deterring people from coming are um, really horrifying on an individual basis. <sighs> anyway, all right. Uh, before we go to our credits, I just want to flag another Slate podcast, which I want to encourage you to listen to, in part because it was in the culture this week. Our GabFest listener, Stephen Colbert, had another Slate podcast hosts on The Late Show this week, which was John McWhorter. John McWhorter is a professor of linguistics at Columbia, and he hosts 
uh, Lexicon Valley, which is a fantastic podcast about language. McWhorter is such an engaging, lively mind. He's so compelling. And Colbert, Colbert called uh, Lexicon Valley one of his favorites. That's praise indeed. Rare um, company and high praise. Exactly. Who, who could imagine being praised like that? Uh, anyway, so you should listen to Lexicon Valley, which is a podcast about language and recent episodes have tackled efforts to revive endangered Native American languages, another on the history and evolution of the word no, and the other and the word not, and also one on how languages around the world develop similar words for mom and dad. So listen to Lexicon Valley. It comes out every other Tuesday. Subscribe today so you can hear every episode as soon as it comes out. That is our GabFest for today. Our show is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should email us at gabfest at slate.com. Tell us podcasts you'd like to listen to or tell us something. And follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. For Emily Basil and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Come see us in St. Louis on May 2nd. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.